0: Good morning. Our sermon text this morning is Jeremiah 17, verses 1 through 10. You can find that on page 645 of your house Bible. If you don't have a Bible or if you know someone who needs one, please take the one you find in the chair in front of you. Jeremiah 17, 1 through 10, beginning on page 645. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord, is the Lord, excuse me. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds.
1: Let's pray. God, thank you for this day and for this word which we need today. We give you thanks and praise. For the chance to come and sing and be encouraged for the chance to hear the gospel, and now to hear your word preached. And Father, you know all of us better than we know ourselves. You know our past, our present, our future. You know right now if we need encouragement to continue in faith, or if by the preaching of your word we might hear correction and guidance that might lead us to repent. And you will help us by your word, discern which. And we pray that it is so through this word, your word, and by the power of your Holy Spirit in our minds and in our own hearts. For your glory, God, for our joy, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, apparently, we are all anxious and need therapy. The Wall Street Journal reported last year, Americans are anxious, and it is spurring big business, as demand for therapy outpaces availability. From supplements to weighted stuffed animals and coloring books, companies, upstarts, and entrepreneurs are all rushing to fill the void. More people, Wall Street Journal, are being diagnosed with anxiety disorder than cancer. To give you a sense of how much more anxious Americans are in recent federal survey, 27% of people report having symptoms of an anxiety disorder, not just being anxious, but actually meeting the criteria for an anxiety disorder. That is up 8% from 2019, which I think is shocking, which means we were pretty anxious back in 2019. That's a lot of people and does not include the people who have everyday anxiety or stresses or difficulty sleeping. American companies are rightly looking at this and thinking, can we come up with solutions and charge consumers to calm down? Just to give you a sense of the things that are out there, there are wearable devices that send waves of vibrations to mimic the natural response to touch. So medical devices to fit on your arm to feel like you are being touched. They cost upwards of three to $400 dollars. There are anti anxiety vitamin and supplement companies, many of them, according to the Wall Street Journal, owned by psychiatrist influencers. The bottles can be anywhere from $20 to $50. You have also some very low cost products, fidget widgets, to play with in your hands, so those might just be a few bucks. There are apps like Headspace, which cost $70 a year, which seems cheap when compared with a therapist which could be 70 to 300 dollars a session. You can just look around and see things are changing. Today's employers are often expected to provide insurance which includes cover coverage for mental health and offer generous absences for mental health issues. The number of medical doctors now is outnumbered by the number of mental health doctors in America. And needing therapy has so quickly gone from being taboo to being almost fashionable. Everyone keeps telling us that we are anxious. In some ways, I think as a pastor, I might have been doing that myself. Are we so anxious? And can we help people who are anxious? I love CCF's statement. Restoring their purpose as an organization, CCEF, I encourage you to go there. Many resources there. Their purpose in counseling is restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. Restoring Christ to counseling and counseling to the church. So many resources to go there. I encourage you to do so. That's kind of what I want to do today. My aim is to restore God As the answer to anxiety. It's going to be important as you listen to the point I'm trying to make today. My aim is not only to comfort the anxious today. But to restore God as the answer to anxiety. You see the difference? My main goal is not only that you might leave encouraged in your anxiety or helped to really nail down the conviction that God is and has the answer to anxiety. So because that's my aim, I want to give you a few caveats really quickly this morning, as quickly as I can. First caveat, you can expose psychology, which I will refer to very generally today, psychology's roots While acknowledging common grace. You can expose psychology's roots while acknowledging common grace. I want to expose today gross shortfalls in modern psychological therapy or theory and therapy practices in general. But be very careful. Here's my caveat. That does not mean that all therapy is always bad for everyone. A soldier talking to a therapist after war is good, a child talking to a therapist when there's no one else at school is good. I'm saying that psychology is like knives and poison. Some theories and practices in psychology toward anxieties are like knives. They can kill or they can do a surgery to help heal. If it's good, it's definitely from God. But some practices and some theories in psychology are like poison. They're irredeemable. You cannot use them for good because they are poisonous in their nature. But that's caveat number one. You can expose the shortfalls of psychology while still acknowledging common graces. I'm trying to have that tone today. Number two, street cred. I personally have a degree in psychology I've taken graduate-level courses on counseling. I've spent I don't know how many hours in counseling anxious people. I've even been anxious before. I've read a stack of books on psychology and counseling. But Here's what I want to say about street cred in the world. I would say I probably have enough street cred, as it were, to impress some some of you. But I know that I don't have enough to convince any of you about God. I think in our world today, we want to listen to experts. And as much as I'm an expert about anything, it is God's Word. That's what I have for you today. I hope that that is convincing to you. Third caveat, some anxiety is good. Some anxiety is good. For example, if you don't get nervous when the Dallas Cowboys are about to kick off... Actually, that's too soon, too soon. Let's uh, switch illustrations. If you're getting married... And you're about to say, I do, and you don't feel some butterflies and some anxiousness about what you're doing, I might be concerned that you don't understand what marriage is. That's normal. Sometimes anxiety saves our lives. Some anxiety is good. Fourth caveat, people are complex. There's a couple of examples. For example, women are statistically more likely to experience anxiety due to hormonal imbalances. That's not being funny. It's not being chauvinistic. It's a studied fact. Also, when people experience trauma or addiction, it can have physiological effects on your brain and your hormones and your body. Neurological paths in your brain can be shifted due to trauma or addiction. The adrenaline in your body can be depleted all of which can increase feelings of anxiety or depression or fear. So I'm acknowledging in this caveat the complexities of humanity. But my main point that I'm making today is that those complexities do not outweigh the simplicity of the problem of anxiety. The biblical cure can actually have physiological effects too. Sixth caveat, I'm not a medical doctor and I am not telling anyone here to quit taking their medicine or to quit seeing any doctor. I'm not doing that today, necessarily. Seventh caveat, I could never give enough caveats to keep from making everyone upset. That's not what I'm trying to do today. So with those things in mind, just know, like if you're, if you're thinking, all right, here we go, and I've got my questions, I'm going to come up later, at least hopefully those will help you know, I've already thought about those things. And I want you to keep everything we have to say today within those categories. Let's begin by defining anxiety. Let's try to define anxiety, at least give it a working definition for today. Well, if you do like anything today, you look stuff up on the internet. Well, if you go type in uh, the word anxious On the internet at least in in my search you come up with the oxford definition anxious the definition is experiencing worry experiencing worry okay so i go to look up the word worry type in definition of worry the oxford definition of worry is to give way to anxiety i didn't find that incredibly helpful so let's go to something significantly more technical the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, edition number five. This is the American Psychological Association's definition of generalized anxiety disorder. This is how you know you have an anxiety disorder, according to the American Psychological Association. The anxiety and worry are associated with three or more Of the following six symptoms. This is how you know when you have a disorder of anxiety. When you have three or more of these symptoms. And they have been present for more days than not in the past six months. If you're a child, you only have to have one of these six symptoms. To have a disorder of anxiety. Restless, number one, restless or feeling keyed up or on edge. Number two, being easily fatigued. Number three, difficulty concentrating or your mind going blank. Number four, irritability. Number five, muscle tension. Number six, sleep disturbance. Now, I think most of us probably looking at one another going, I think I might be anxious. (laughs) I just can check off some of those things uh, in my life. This reminds me of my first semester in psychology at the University of Mary Hardin-Baylor being introduced to the DSM and the definition of depression. And I just remember hearing the definition of depression and just thinking, our whole class is depressed. I'm depressed. We're all depressed. I just think about this definition and think it's unfortunate for the guy who was really anxious most of the time for five months, but then he goes to see a psychiatrist on a good week. And the psychiatrist has to say, you were just so close to having a disorder. It's got to be six months, though. Any three of those for six months and you have a bona fide disorder. Why six months? Why three symptoms? I don't know. Here's a definition by a Dr. Paul Bloom, who I'll refer to a few different times this morning. He's the author of a book called Psych. Psych. Which, when I asked my son to grab it for me last night, he did. He brought it to me. He held it out. And as I went to grab it, he said, psych, and he pulled it away. Not the meaning of the book, but clever nonetheless. (laughs) Paul Bloom is the professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Yale, or Yale University. He defines general anxiety disorder the way I think would just be really helpful for us. He defines generalized anxiety disorder this way. Essentially, the problem of worrying about things all the time. I think that's how we think about anxiety. The problem of worrying about things all the time. Things are going to turn out bad. It's going to be a bad day at work. I don't know if I'm going to make it. We won't have enough money. People don't love me. We could go on and on. Well, I think the Bible can help anxious people who worry all the time. The Bible can help you with, as it were, generally or generalized anxiety. The cure for worry, according to God's word, is to worship God. The cure for worry, according to God's word, is to worship God. Jeremiah 17 is a message to the nation of Judah. A people in a time, in a place, and a behavior who should be anxious. And God is explaining their anxiety to them. If you hold your finger in Jeremiah, maybe just flip up to the table of contents in your Bible. Just so you can get a sense of, Couple of sentences I'm going to share next: history of Israel that span through the Old Testament, and just how important this defining moment is as it relates to the narrative of Israel from Exodus <coughs> through Second Kings and the prophets. What God is saying in Jeremiah 17 isn't just about a couple of things in Jeremiah 17; it spans Exodus through the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God saves his elect, Israel, his people. He saves his covenant people from slavery, and at the end he dwells with them in the tabernacle. He is with them and follows them, cares for them, gives them water in the desert, gives them food in the desert. On the way to the land that he had promised them, we get Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God, in short, is giving his people commands For how to live with him and worship him in his presence. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. His command is central. In the land, worship me, and it will go well. But if you forsake me to idols, you will see destruction within and without. And then we get the books of Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Those are spanning the history of Israel post exile from 1400 BC to around 580 586 BC to be exact when babylon came to destroy judah and god's temple that whole period from exodus to the end of second kings could be summarized in many ways but in one way I told you there would be destruction if you worshipped other gods. You can find it in every book from Exodus to 2 Kings. And they did. And so God did. In 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed Judah, burned it to the ground, including the temple which Solomon had built for God, and took a few remaining Israelites to be slaves in Babylon. They had already watched their brothers in the northern tribes be taken to Assyria for the same reason. And here in Jeremiah 17, Babylon is looking. This is a little moment. Jeremiah 17 is within this moment when Babylon has not yet totally destroyed everything. Babylon is looking at Judah like a wolf looks at a rabbit. A very anxious moment for the rabbit. Look again at Jeremiah 17, 1 through 10. The sin of Judah. The sin of Judah is that idolatry, forsaking God, worshiping other gods. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. This is not some pencil sketch note. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Where is the problem of Israel's sin? It is written in diamond on their heart. And I can see it. in the horns of their altars, with, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on every high hill, on the mountains and the open country. Your wealth and your treasures I will give for spoil, as the price of your high places, for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. Where in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. God is mad. When God's mad, I think it's a good moment to be anxious. Verse 5, thus says the Lord... Here's the situation. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength; whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and inhabited, un- an uninhabited salt land. And blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not bear, cease to bear fruit. Do you see the dynamic between God's chosen people and their anxiety in the history of their nation? Troubled hearts, fearful worry. God is to the heart as water is to the tree. That's the illustration. God is to the heart as water is to the tree. And anxiety comes from the heart like the desert makes a shrub. The words that come from God's mouth to his people when they rejected him were that you're doomed if you do that. That is cursed. You trust in mankind in the way that you are supposed to trust God. That is a general cursed direction. God is explaining what he has been explaining since the Garden of Eden. And still today. That there are two ways to live your life. Two. One, trust in mankind and be anxious like a shrub in the desert. That's one choice. Have you seen that shrub maybe in a picture or in real life, all dried up, dusty, isolated, not even thirsty anymore? It's given up, cursed. Wind doesn't even blow it around because it doesn't have any any leaves to pick up the, the breeze. A shrub in the desert, no good comes. Rain clouds come, but rain clouds come always over there, just over the horizon. And that is what the man is himself like. The man who trusts in man is like that. Not just his circumstances, the man is like the shrub himself. The other choice, the other way to live is to trust God and not be anxious like a tree by the river. That's the other way to live. The one who trusts the Lord is like a tree growing and growing with green leaves and a sturdy trunk. And it's always drinking and drinking from the river. And when there's a drought, when circumstances want to kill it and dry up, no worries. No worries. Not anxious. I've got a river. I'm I'm right by a river. So I don't stop bearing fruit. When the dry season happens out there, I pray for you all the time because my river is right here and it never goes away. That is what the man himself is like who puts his trust in God. He is himself like that tree, not his circumstances, himself. What does it say there in verse 8? He will not be anxious. (laughs) God is diagnosing their temporal moment of anxiety in Israel with timeless truth. God is diagnosing their temporal moment of anxiety with timeless truth. That anxiety that we feel is the anxiety that they feel, which is the anxiety that Adam and Eve felt in their shame. The cure for worry is worship. Worship. Why are you so worried? Why are we so anxious? Why is our heart so shaky? It is because we have not fixed our heart on God in awe-filled worship, which would make us like a plant by a never-ceasing river. I want to show you how God gives a better diagnosis and cure than the world. God gives a better diagnosis and cure than the world. You might go to a car mechanic or a doctor. They're going to look around at things. They're, you go to them. You're going to give them some money so that they will make a diagnosis. They'll come back to you. I looked at your car. I checked it out. It's bad. You're going to owe me a lot of money. My diagnosis, based on the sounds that you tried to make a moment ago, is this. And it's going to cost you a billion dollars. Well, you might look for a second opinion if that that were the price tag. And here's what I want to say. If all you have, if you're here today and all you have as help for anxiety is the world's modern psychology and therapy, I want to give you a second opinion. Or maybe actually the first opinion. What the world is offering today, which I will summarize generally in broad strokes, and remember my caveats, what the world is offering today in modern psychology is the grandchild of the Enlightenment. Let me give you some background here, some historical context for our day. The Enlightenment was a period in which the dominant thought about the world shifted from God and spiritual to atheistic and material, from religious to scientific. And that movement is the work of a man named Carl Linnaeus. In his 1750s work on taxonomy of the animal kingdom, Linnaeus, as part of the Enlightenment, as extension of the Enlightenment, was the first to list humans in the taxonomy of the animal kingdom. Before that, predominantly, man thought there are animals and there are men. There are animals and there are women. But Linnaeus said there are... I don't know what his term would be, actually. (laughs) Species or whatever. And man is included as part of the animal kingdom. We are just the same. Well, just over 100 years later, Charles Darwin was holding this book in his hand when he was looking at the world. Modern psychology as we know it has different roots than science does, for example. Where many early and bright scientists were Christians, the field of modern psychology has its roots in post-enlightenment humanistic materialism. This is not my opinion. This is history. This is where our predominantly therapeutic psychological practices come from, historically. Where the Enlightenment said, there is no God, we are only material, psychology picked its head up and said, okay then, we had better come up with some new solutions to our disorders. Freud was the first to study the subconscious in an impactful way, at least. And he came to suggest that through the therapy known as, by some, as the talking cure, we must discover buried trauma and lusts, sexual desire, which are buried deep down, which you don't know are actually driving you. Why are you so worried? Why are you so anxious or depressed or schizophrenic for that matter? There are subconscious traumas that you are dealing with. You might have a split personality or dissociative disorder, as we call it today, to try to hide those things. Then came the American Freud. His name was B.F. Skinner. He was a behaviorist. Skinner wanted to kind of get rid of Freud's internal psychology progresses altogether, He thought that a proper psychology, if we're going to be serious about psychology, then we're going to make no principled distinction between people and rats. Freud wants to study your mind and your subconscious, and Skinner came along and said, no, 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 if we're going to really help people, we have to think about people like animals. Think about their base behaviors and recondition their behaviors. Skinner was a child of Ivan Pavlov in psychology world, that is, and his salivating dog. Everyone knows about Ivan Pavlov and his dog's bell. And the answer to man's problem is we just need to recondition our behavior by new associations and new stimulus, new thoughts. Well, it's not entirely untrue in so many ways. But then came a man named Abraham Maslow in in the U.S. who said, it's not about our subconscious like Freud... It's all social. It's not just behavioral and environmental like Skinner. Really, to oversummarize, you need friends. So maybe you folks who are older in the room can remember Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is from Abraham Maslow, the president of the American Psychological Association in the 60s. Maslow believed if you have physical needs and they're met, that that's the bottom of his pyramid... If you have safety and you have social belonging and then self-esteem will come with with your social support, then you will achieve the top of the pyramid, which is self-actualization, creative, full potential. You'll be all of your best self. If you have safety and good social relationships, you will be a good, whole, creative, going to work, having a family, not doing any drugs person. By the way, it was Maslow's theories which were the basis of the DARE program in Los Angeles in the 80s. There's a reason you don't hear about the DARE program anymore. It's because it failed miserably. Their goal was to think, their goal, their, their idea, according to Maslow, was to think if we can, we can get rid of the drug problem in Los Angeles, if we will just help our kids have friends and, and esteem, if we will quit, make, make sure they, have, they don't have to think that they're cool and liked by doing drugs so we need peers and we need environment we need different things around them and of course that's not untrue in so many ways but over the 10-15 years that los angeles dumped millions of dollars into this program drug use increased among teens so whether you think we solve man's problems through the subconscious our behavior our social interactions All those are post-enlightenment theories which are trying to save man from his disorders from a godless worldview born in the Enlightenment. Abraham Maslow summed up psychology's entire post-enlightenment answer to man's problem in a speech at the University of Nebraska in 1955. He was invited to speak at a prestigious symposium on psychology and he used the occasion to share his conviction that the pursuit of, quote, pure, cold truth for its own sake is no longer enough. He aspired to find ways to use his knowledge of psychology for the improvement of humanity, showing people how to, quote, be peaceful, courageous, and just, unquote. He opined. I sometimes think that the world will be saved by psychologists or it will not be saved at all. Psychology as a field, generally with broad strokes historically, hear me, remember my caveats, is the post-enlightenment answer for how to fix what is wrong with us since we don't believe in God anymore. When we abandon God, how do we fix our anxiety and our problems? Freud So we've got to get into the subconscious trauma. Well, it's not all wrong. Skinner thought the problem was classical behavioral conditioning. Well, there's actually some truth. Some of this practice could be helpful today. Maslow thought you just need a friend. Well, this is is true too. But what they all have in common from generation to generation of psychological progression is that they left God's diagnosis and cure out of the equation altogether. And made man and left man as a material thing who owns and diagnoses and cures himself, absent of God. God has a better diagnosis and cure for the anxiety of man for every problem that man has than man can ever offer. Look in Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. This is what God says... Through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel in their moment. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's a diagnosis. The heart is sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God sees and understands the heart. Scientists and psychologists can only see behavior and neurons and dendrites and axons interacting with your hormones. That's all they can see. They can debate, and they are debating still today, which gland or organ or part of the physical body, maybe it's the pituitary gland or the part of the brain, which actually connects the material to the person, or if there even is such thing as a person. I want you to know God sees our heart Like an MRI with contrast. Verse 9 is the question Who can understand the heart? Answer verse, verse 10 I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. God's a better psychologist and a better scientist than any man could ever be. He searches the heart, He tests the mind. God understands your heart. At the very beginning of this chapter, God said, listen, here's the whole problem. Your sin is written on your heart. It's not just that you have been behaving in some bad ways, Israel. I know the problem is not just that you have been going to the wrong temple. Your sin, Judah, is engraved by a diamond-tipped pin on your heart, and I see it, and your sick heart is the problem. That's why you're so anxious. I see your heart, and I understand it. God diagnoses the heart. Whether you are a psychologist, or a pastor, or a football coach, or a spouse, or a parents, it doesn't matter. We're all trying to always diagnose the heart. We're we're all little baby, infant, want to be psychologists. Anytime you look at someone else and say, I know why you did that. Oh, really? You're a psycholo- psychological doctor, are you? Well, now you know. You, you, now you know men's hearts. Oh, we want to assign motives to hearts all the time. Sometimes we even try to do our own. Sometimes we try to defend our own hearts. You don't even know why I did that. You don't know why I did that. I actually had good motives. I, I have a good heart. Oh, God says the heart is so deceptive. It's deceitful. It's always hiding. It's sly. It's difficult to understand. Who can understand it? We should try to understand our heart. We should try to understand others' hearts. But God does not need a second opinion about the heart of man. Notice that God is not just speaking in terms of Israel. He responds to the situation of Israel with eternal truths, constant truths, about man, about the heart itself. It's not just that your heart is doing bad things. The problem is the heart is sick itself all the time because of sin since Adam and Eve. It's beyond understanding. This is part of God's point to Israel. The heart cannot be understood by you like it can by me. Honest and studied students of the mind, for example, will be humble and admit that we don't know much about the motivations of the mind and the heart and where they come from. Paul Bloom, for example, again, the professor of psychology at Toronto, says at the beginning of the book, the mysteries of space and time turn out to be easier for our minds to grasp than those of the consciousness and choice. We can understand black holes 10,000 galaxies away better than we can understand our own minds and choices professor of the University of Toronto in psychology. What's at stake in our world today, in our study of the person, is the ancient truth and timeless truth that God knows the heart better than man. Some theories and practices picked up by psychology are borrowing from God, and they are good like knives. They can do really, really good things and actually, really, truly help people. But if a theory or a practice says, no, 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 the the fundamental problem is something other than God and His diagnosis of the heart, in broad terms, something man-made up, something the Enlightenment produced, and it's more practical, it's better helpful for God, it has a better understanding of man than God, be careful, that's poison. That's a poison-tipped knife. Who can understand the heart? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. How is God the gospel for the anxious? Three ways. God is the gospel for the anxious. Number one, God is sovereign. Anxiety is worry about the future. And Isaiah 46.10 says, God has made known the end from the beginning. Just a few chapters later in the book of Jeremiah, you have this great debate between two prophets, the true prophet Jeremiah and the false prophet Hananiah. Jeremiah says, we're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Hananiah says, no, God's not that mad. It's just going to be a couple of years and then we'll come home. Jeremiah is proved to be the true prophet when Hananiah dies next year. Part of the sovereignty of God is that he knows the future. And the definition of anxiety is worry about the future. We're just worried all the time about what's going to happen. God knows the future, and He sovereignly controls it. The reason Babylon was coming to Israel and Judah in the first place, Assyria to Israel, Judah, Babylon, is because God brought them. God whistled for Babylon like an owner calls his dog out of the forest to come do a trick, that's how Habakkuk refers to it. Babylon was doing God's will. He is sovereign over the nations, over kings, over your life and my life, accomplishing his plan in the world. Nothing can stop God. And God cares. God is sovereign and he cares. In the New Testament, whenever Jesus or the apostles teach the church about anxiety, we are almost always taken to the fact that God cares that he's all sovereign, and he is responsible for things, but he also cares for you. In the New Testament, you see passages like Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God cares about you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter says, simply cast all your anxieties on God because He cares for you. He cares for you. It could be summarized in Jesus' words to the disciples when they were in the storm-tossed boat in John 6. It is I. Do not be afraid. Anxiety most often is not the fear that God can't do something, but that He doesn't want to. Oh, church, know that God cares. Friends, if you've never considered God in the Bible and you're swimming in a psychologically driven world only and you've never thought about God and how he feels about you or you're disappointed that you thought God cared about you but it turns out that he doesn't, just know. It's difficult to grasp how much God cares about us. The gospel is a reminder how much God cares for us, how much he loves you. It's the good news in the gospel. God actually cares for you. Rather than remain in judgment and angry, as in Jeremiah 17, he loves and he's merciful. And See how the gospel that God gave his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for your sins is the means to which we get rid of anxiety for everything else in the whole world. The gospel itself. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He... Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up the gospel for you. How will he not also graciously give us all things? If God will give us his son, Christ, there is nothing he's holding behind his back. No care, no love, no affection, no provision. Thirdly, he is wise. God is sovereign. The gospel is that he cares for us and he is wise. In God's wisdom, the murderous crucifixion of his son is how he forgives his people. doesn't make sense in our world. He ordained the crucifixion. Acts 4 says God put Pilate and Herod and Pharisees all together in order to see Jesus crucified in order that we might be atoned in our sins. The cross did not just happen to Jesus by wicked men. In God's wisdom, God ordained and worked out that Jesus would die on the cross. God did the cross for us. Paul was Saved through a shipwreck, Israel was preserved through captivity, and on and on and on, God continues to glorify himself and show himself through cancer and through death and through providence time and time again. God is wise to put things together in history and your every moment in a way which is good for you. Because when things aren't working out the way we want, we tend to think God either cannot do something or he does not care. But he is sovereign and he cares and he is so wise. When Paul gets to the end of the doctrine of salvation and all that God has done through Israel and then in Christ, he simply cries out a doxological praise. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He's wise. He knows what he is doing. And he is sovereign and he cares. The message of the Bible over and over and over is trust God, He is sovereign, He cares, He knows what He is doing. And look to the gospel of Jesus Christ to see that all of those things are true. We have all this big hope. The gospel, Christ crucified for our sins for all eternity, we will dwell with God. And yet sometimes we get anxious. It's really silly that we do that. One of my favorite songs but one of my favorite bands has this line, you are like a phoenix rising from the ashes. I raised up from the ashes. And all you care about is death and taxes. And we have a gospel that God has saved our souls for all eternity. And you get anxious because the grocery store is busy today. some conclusions to close. Number one, and I have eight so that you can count and see when we're going to be done. Number one, anxiety is more deeply theological in the heart than it is psychological in the mind or biological in the body. And I want to emphasize more deeply because my caveats, I already gave those. I'm not excluding those things. Those practices are helpful. But anxiety is more deeply theological in the heart than it is psychological in the mind or biological in the body. It begins first there. It obviously has implications in the mind and body. I could talk about it all day. Paul Bloom in his book Psych says, Why do problems like schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, and depressions exist in the first place? Well, we've we've heard that Freud had his answer. Skinner had his answer. We heard that Maslow had his answer. There's a new answer today. And Dr. Bloom gives it to us. We've seen, why do we have these things? His answer is actually an extension of Darwinian's natural selection. He says, we've seen that there are genes that predispose us to develop these disorders, or at least that fail to develop resilience to them. Well, that may be true that some people have a greater proclivity to anxiety than the person next to them from the day they are born. But let us not be careful that this answer, in other words, is saying anxiety exists because we have not weeded it out of the gene pool yet. It's offensive. You anxious people are the problem. You keep reproducing. The answer, maybe in time, will weed out all the anxious genes. And I'm here to say no, God kills anxiety. And the heart of the problem is theological in the heart. Number two, anxiety should not be thought of first as a disorder that you have, but an emotion that you are feeling. Do not think of anxiety as something that is happening to you. Because of Jeremiah 17, think about anxiety as a symptom of thirst in the heart. Think about it like dehydration. Dehydration is not a disorder. Nothing's wrong with you if you are dehydrated. Dehydration is your body doing what it's supposed to do. Dehydration is your body telling you, you need water. If you're thirsty, we, we, we all heard this before. If you're thirsty, you're already on the path of dehydration. If you're beginning to feel a little bit anxious at all, you don't even have an anxiety disorder. And couldn't be diagnosed with one if you tried. You're already on the path. You're already on the way of recognizing, I'm really thirsty for God. Anxiousness is telling us emotionally that we are thirsting for God. Anxiety is disordered worship in that sense. Number three, the primary way out of anxiety is repentance. I want to say the primary way. Why is the heart so anxious in Jeremiah 17? Because the heart is fixed on man and man's wisdom and man's power and man's knowledge. Remember the caveat about human complexity. There are all kinds of physiological complexities to mankind. And if we're going to really deal with anxiety as a a whole person, we have to entertain all of those in various different ways. But the fundamental way out of anxiety for mankind through history is to confess, I've been trying to get something else to be like God to me. The primary way out of anxiety is to fix your heart on God, to trust Him, to believe that He is sovereign, that He cares for you, and that what He is doing in your life is wise. You might need to delete some phone apps. You might need to quit a a hobby and quit trying to get God out of those things. They're not rivers of water. Make sure God is the center of your heart. Number four, anxiety is the church's business. Anxiety is the church's business. Pointing people to God is what the church does. That's what we do. We're here in order to show and tell people about God all that he has done for us in Christ. Anxiety is the church's business. There is a movement out there in the world that there is anxiety, and you need to leave anxiety to the professionals. Well, let me be very clear. I probably should have added this caveat somewhere. See, you just can't do enough caveats. There are times when you should go to the doctor, and there are times when you might need to go to all different kinds of doctors about different things. But we should not throw out the baby with the psychological bathwater, so to speak. As a church, we are here to help one another with disordered worship, which creates anxiety. As a church, we are taking each other and new people from being shrubs to trees by rivers of living water. Our invitation as a church is to come learn God in his word. Come learn the gospel that God cares for you. Come experience the love of God in our church to one another. The church brings people to God who can come and see him and have their hearts calmed. No professional can replace the people of God. Let's say we should never go to professionals. But anxiety is the church's business. Number five. Number five, get therapy from your church get therapy from your church. I'm not going to spend any more time on caveats. But before you Google online Christian therapist or or try to find a therapist in your area or or call the the HR department in your work, I want to encourage you to call a brother or sister in the church and say, I am very anxious. I need to talk to someone. Call your pastor and say, I am having a really hard time. Let's read about God together. Let's go for a walk together. Let's pray together. Friends, it should not be a first instinct for us to pay $100 to talk to a stranger when our brothers and sisters have been bought by Christ's blood and can give us worship toward God. The church is here for one another. So make sure that you're getting therapy from your church. Number six, listen to each other. As you seek to care for each other, listen to each other. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding can draw it out. What's going on down in your heart? It's hard to know. Only God can ultimately know. If 200 years of psychologists haven't figured out how the heart is going to be like God, then don't pretend that you're going to figure it out in five minutes what's going on in a person across from you. Listen and let the heart come out when we're caring for others. I think it's one of the things I'm most thankful for in my wife, Colette. She's a really good question asker. And she's taught me how to ask questions and listen actively. In fact, we had a a date night on, on Thursday. I've been telling people we went parking because we just went and sat in Target parking lot for an hour. And she probably listened to me for about 50 minutes. That's a long time. A long time. Listen. The number one review subject... When people review their counselors on Betterhelp.com, is so-and-so is a really good listener. You don't have to pay anybody100 dollars to listen to you. Go to the church directory and call anybody. Number seven: daily quench the thirst of anxiety in the rhythms of the word. Daily quench the thirst of anxiety in the rhythms of the word. Walking in the rhythms of the word in your life are like planting your life by the river of worshiping God. This is why daily Bible reading and daily discipleship and regular gathering with the church and singing and preaching and praying are so important. Not because they are a rule and if you don't follow them, God's going to be really mad that you broke the law. That's not the only reason. The, The reason is this is the river. Plant your life in it. Go to your life group, read your Bible, pray, keep making church your priority to gather here because this, as we look at God together, is how we connect to the river. I want to go, go to church because I'm so anxious. We can have, the word can have profound effects on us. Psalm chapter 19, verse seven through 7 through 8 says, The law of the Lord... Is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commands of the Lord, commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It actually has effects on us. It does not only inform us. The Bible, fellowship with God promises, prayer, discipleship in the Word, singing together. These are highly therapeutic. Number eight, and lastly, I don't think our church is as anxious as the world. That's my last conclusion. I don't think our church is as anxious as the world and as anxious as the reports tell us. Don't believe it. I don't even know where to begin. as I look at it and see pregnancies that have been lost, marriages on the rocks, loved ones lost, singleness, dating, engagement, marriage, divorce, caring for your elderly parents, being an elderly parent, getting news that you might get laid off and getting laid off. Switching jobs, moving, rebellious teenagers. Could we not just go on and on? You know, I, I just continue to be so proud of this church for so many ways that we are not as anxious as the world. I don't think, don't believe that. And I think it's because there are so many who love the Lord, who do what Psalm 56, verse 3, 3, 4 says. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Thank you, God, for your kind word to us. For your kindness to correct and rebuke. We recognize that you offer a better diagnosis, a better cure than man ever could. You see our hearts, you diagnose our hearts in ways that we cannot. And Father, while there are so many complexities about our minds and our hearts and so many various kinds of help in the church and without, you just help us Anchor it deep, deep down. That to trust man will leave us like a shrub in the desert. To trust you will make us like a tree by the water. Or might that be so for us? Father, this week, might you draw us in fresh ways to come to the river of worship to you and be encouraged and let it wash away every anxiety. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. That in Him we see your sovereign, you care, you are wise. Help us love that. We pray this together in Christ's name.